0: Hey, Rockheads. This is Music to Code by Track 12. Check this out. Oh, yeah. Just what you need to get in the zone when you write code. And get this, we just added a site license. Download it once, share it with everybody in your office. Check it out at musictocodeby.net.
1: Net rocks episode 1307 with guest anthony goldblum recorded wednesday may 25th 2016
0: thank you very much welcome back to .Net rocks this is carl franklin and this is richard campbell and we're here for another hour um Sorry about my voice. I have to apologize every time because I've got a cold and we record these shows out of order. So you might know and you might not know. I
2: don't know. This is probably the first recording published. Okay. After Belgium, where this all started, which was a few weeks ago in real lifetime. Four weeks. Yep. Yeah. Basically, my doctor said there's, uh, there's something
0: going around and people have been out for six weeks. But fortunately, I don't have a fever. I know it's not bacterial, though. Antibiotics didn't work. And uh, it's a virus. I just have to sit it out.
2: And you're surviving.
0: Yeah. I feel great.
2: Otherwise, I just can't speak. You you sound mediocre. There's no two ways about it. Yeah. Although, I mean, I've been talking to you throughout this whole duration. You are sounding better, my friend. That's, That's true. Yep. But you'll hear shows after this one that were recorded before this one Mm. where he sounds worse.
0: Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's get started with Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? Well, this is show 1307. So if you go to me, that will bring you to this really cool blog post Model view controller explained through ordering drinks at the bar.
2: Oh, I love it. This is awesome.
0: Because what, <laughs> 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 what better metaphor? You know, it starts with a, um, a user request. It's basically along a route, let's say home and uh, the user requests, um, a Manhattan. Or something like that. The bartender gives you a quick nod to the bartender. Manhattan is not a tasty drink. It's merely a series of steps. One, grab the glass. Two, add the whiskey. Three, add the vermouth. Four, add the bitters. Five, stir the drink. Six, add a cherry. Seven, ask for the credit card and charge. And the bartender's brain here is the controller. As soon as you say the word Manhattan in a language they understand, the work begins. The work is similar in nature to making a margarita or a strawberry daiquiri, but uses distinct ingredients that will never be confused. And the bartender can only use the tools and resources that are behind the bar, and this limited tool set is the model. Including the bartender's hands, the shakers, mixing equipment, liquors, mixes, glasses, and garnishes... And uh, perhaps at a fancier bar, they might have a robot assistant or an automatic drink mixer. It doesn't matter to your particular bartender who can only use the available resources. Finally, the finished drink that you can see and consume is the View. The View is built out of the limited options from the model and arranged and transmitted via the controller. That is the bartender's brain. Ta-da! Nice.
2: Brilliant. Isn't that awesome? It's a good little metaphor. It's
0: a great metaphor. And you get a Manhattan.
2: Yeah, and don't yell at the empty glass, it won't do anything, that's just a view. (laughs) That's great. Uh. (laughs) All right, Richard, who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 1302, we just did recently with Oranini when we were in Belgium we were talking about thinking non-relationally, which I think, you know, generated a lot of comments too. Yeah. Just from, you know, you, you reading the, all of the comments, I got the feedback of very much of, all right, there are folks who are still very much thinking relationally and pressing back and forth on ideas. Uh, this one comment is from uh, Petter Broughton, who said, a great show, just a quick observation from the non-native speaker, I suspect he's Belgian, uh, about the opening comments about pronouncing sequel, because that's when I did the whole story of how IBM came up with the name sequel versus SQL.
0: And didn't that raise a kerfuffle?
2: Yes, it, as, as it usually does. And, I, you know, you can look it up. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't think of this. I'm just a storyteller. I did not write it. Yeah. But that's how it happened. Uh, By the way, Petter, not Belgian. In the next sentence, he says, like most other Norwegians, I have a fairly good grasp of English as a second language. And working as a developer, I spend much of my day thinking or writing in English. Which, you know, for better or worse, software development is done in English most of the time. It's very interesting. Yeah. Unfortunately, text does not convey pronunciation very well, especially when it comes to non-standard spelling of already convoluted rules behind how English is or should be spoken. Most of the people I've studied with and are working with have been Norwegian, and most of them will pronounce SQL as SQL, Mm -hmm. because that's what makes sense when you read it in a book and don't know the context of it being the sequel to a previous database. Right. I'd heard people pronounce it a sequel before, but at the time, I thought they were only trying to be clever. Ah! The first time I realized there was actually supposed to be a sequel and not SQL was when reading the official Microsoft SQL Server documentation and seeing things like a SQL Server instance rather than an SQL Server instance. Right. A versus an.
0: Yeah, right. It's the article that defines yes. how you pronounce it.
2: But then it, that's a very subtle way to pick up in a pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Other products where I and others suffer from this non-native language confusion are nougat. Is it nougat or nugget or nougat? Yeah. And link. Is it link or l i n q or even linq? Linq. I hadn't heard that one. Uh, you know, that doesn't even begin to mention products that are pronounced differently in different dialects, like Azure or is it Azure?
0: I've heard Microsoft people pronounce it both ways, so apparently yes. they can't even make up their mind.
2: Because in the beginning, they were quite adamant about it being Azure. Yes. But now you start hearing Azure, yeah. which is the color pronunciation, I think. Who knows?
0: Yeah, it's sort of the European French influence, I would say. There you go. Yeah.
2: And that's the end of my mini rant. Obviously, this isn't a big deal, but it's funny when you sometimes have three developers in a room, and all of them are sticking to their guns and pronouncing the technology you're discussing their way, safe in the knowledge that the other two dumbasses don't even know how to English properly.
0: English properly? Yes. They don't know how to English properly. <laughs> that's
2: right.
0: I wonder if that was <laughs> intentional.
2: I think it was. <laughs> I think Peter's pretty funny, actually. That's well done. Uh, I have nothing to add. This is all brilliant.
0: Yeah. Just great.
2: Peter, thank you so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. Plus. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl
0: Franklin. Send us a tweet. We garnish our Manhattans with them. And that brings us to Anthony Goldblum. He is co-founder and CEO of Kaggle. Kaggle? Kaggle? Anthony?
1: So, I I liked your first pronunciation best. So, the company's pronounced Kaggle. Kaggle. It's a little bit... It's a little bit awkward. So, the company started, you can probably tell from my accent, uh, I'm Australian and the company started in Australia. Ah. Uh, and it was very obviously pronounced KAGGLE. And then we moved to the US. This is actually apropos the, the yeah, letter that got it sure is. <laughs> um, and so, then we moved to the US and we noticed uh, in particular, um, people in the Midwest and, and in other parts of America as well would pronounce it Kegel, which sounds a lot like the pelvic floor exercises, yeah, which was definitely yes. not. Because you don't want to call it a Kegel because <laughs> there you uh, are. It, Which is definitely not the association we were going for. Uh
0: (laughs) All right. Well, anyway, let me continue. Kaggle is best known for hosting machine learning competitions where data scientists download data and upload solutions to very difficult problems. They have worked with companies ranging from Merck, GE, and Shell on problems like predicting which chemical compounds will make for good drugs to improving the efficiency of oil production. They have a community of over 500,000 data scientists who build 100,000 machine learning models each month to compete in their competitions. Officially welcome to .net Rocks
1: Anthony. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Kaggle, Kaggle SQL, SQL. Oh my gosh, what are people thinking?
2: <laughs> it's all well and fine to wonder how what the right things are. It's when you get into arguments about them that it gets very silly. Right. And I maybe
0: maybe all of that silliness is why we started seeing products with names like cucumber and, you know, just crazy, crazy nouns that are inoffensive and random nouns that you see every day. I don't know. What does Kaggle mean, actually?
1: Well, so when Kaggle started, which is uh, 2010 – uh, in order to be credible, you really had to have a .com d- domain name, but just about everything right. .com was taken. Uh, and so I wrote an, a simple algorithm that iterated over phonetic domain names and printed out a list of those that were available. <laughs> and um, I, have, I own a lot of kind of phonetic... Dot .com URLs as a result. And it ended up coming down to a choice of two. It was Kaggle, which no one owned it. There was really nothing. Um, and, you know, there was no web presence for the word Kaggle, so I could easily get the top Google rank. The only thing that um, it already existed for Kaggle was there was somebody who had the Kaggle twitter handle and i wrote to the person and i asked whether i could buy it from them uh and they said yes so long as the website i was starting was not a pornography site oh cool uh, (laughs) i I think i was able to to satisfy the person that it was as far from a pornography site as you could probably possibly get yeah and so yeah that's how um the name came about and the number two choice which i still own is sumble.com sumble sumble s-u-m-b-l-e
2: ah okay this is such a geeky way to solve a problem. Let's just write a phonetic algorithm.
1: That's great. Yeah, I, I I sometimes wonder whether we shouldn't have retrofitted some. You know, it means this in in some Swahili language, which which I feel like is is more of a romantic approach to naming a company. But this this worked.
0: Well, Microsoft did that with SQL. They defined it after after the fact.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> Most good acronyms that's where they come from. Oh, we have these letters. Let's come up with something.
0: Yeah. So let's talk machine learning. It sounds like you guys do quite a lot of it.
1: Yeah, or I would say we see quite a lot of it. Um, and it's been a, we, we sit in a really interesting position. So Kaggle started in uh, 2010. And at the time, you know, there was this sort of nebulous word data science that was an attempt to bring together. You had statisticians who worked in one silo, and you had bioinformaticians who worked in another silo, and you had machine learning people who worked in another silo. And actually, a lot of them were using um, similar approaches, um, and so one of the I- interesting things about Kaggle, we started in 2010, and the early competitions we ran were often with academic researchers, you know, trying to take genetic markers and trying to predict the progression of HIV viral load. We did some work with NASA on uh, taking astronomical is- images and and trying to very precisely measure the ellipticity of a galaxy. Um, just a moment. Did you say ellipticity? <laughs> did I did I mispronounce?
2: No, I think you pronounced it brilliantly. It's just like that is like a 75 cent word you just let drop there. <laughs> Beats the heck, heck out of kegels anyway. Shall we define it? Ellipticity.
1: Ellipticity. How elliptical something is? Ah, uh, yes. The ellipticity.
0: Oh,
1: yeah. So, so the utility of this is if, if uh, a galaxy will follow a normal ellipticity a certain it'll have a certain shape to it um but what uh, astronomers are interested in uh, is if the galaxy is stretched there's probably a lot of dark matter between the observer and the galaxy or the telescope and the and the galaxy and so you can't directly see dark matter but you can see it's there's an effect called gravitational lensing which is the gravitational effect on the um, on the way we view the galaxy, and so the the NASA astronomers, what they wanted to do was get an algorithm that could very very precisely measure the ellipticity of galaxies. And so what they did was they created uh, simulated images that simulated naturally ellipticity of, of the galaxy, a certain dark matter distribution, telescope imperfections, atmospheric distortions, uh, and they wanted an algorithm that could really within very 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 fine grain uh, way determine the ellipticity of a galaxy and so they put that out as a competition and actually that competition really probably put us on the map or was one of the competitions that put us on the map um because what we were able to do, it was actually a glaciologist who made the first big breakthrough on this, but the community did a far j- better job than the astronomical community were able to do. Uh, in, in in less than a week, I think the, the best NASA approaches on this problem had been outperformed. And that was a really good proof point for us, because NASA is obviously a well-regarded um, organisation with a lot of smart people. If even NASA uh, can be outperformed you know what what about you know the, the data science team i have in you know what whatever my company is mm. and so it was an important proof point for the company
0: now w- would you call this gamification of algorithm development or is it not you don't think it's not quite there
1: yeah i, I mean i don't like the word but um, yeah. if i'm t- if i'm to be perfectly honest
0: because it's really just a pure competition right
1: yeah well it, it's it's I mean, what happens is a company will put up a problem, or an organisation will put up a problem. So it might be, um, you know, predicts, uh, you know, predicts um, which cars sold us at a second-hand auction are going to be good buys, or which are going to be lemons. And what we'll do is we'll have they'll give us ten years worth of historical data on the on the cars that they have bought from second-hand auctions, and some of them had warranty claims, and some of them didn't. And so ha- how this all works is a data scientist will download this catalog of mm. data on vehicles. Mm-hmm. and and whether they had warranty claims, we'll give them the answers on one half, and we won't give them the answers on the other half. Oh. And so, and so, what they're trying to do is they're trying to predict of the ones where we didn't give them the answers, which vehicles were most likely to have a warranty claim against them. Sure. Um, and and the reason gamification I think is is fair is because, uh, or is is not an inaccurate um, word to use, is we give people feedback on how they're performing on a live leaderboard, right, and right. so you might be getting 60% of warranty claims correct, and I'm getting 55% of warranty claims correct. You can see on the leaderboard that you have a more accurate algorithm than I do. And that's very important because it catalyzes me. I know it's possible to get to at least 60%. And so, the fact that you have a better score on the leaderboard than me catalyzes me to try harder and to try and outperform where I was before. Um, Right. It gives you an incentive to up your game, so to speak. Yeah, exactly. The motivation, the incentive, and the knowledge. It's this interesting effect where when somebody gets it's a breakthrough on the competition. Others very quickly match it yeah. because there's something about knowing it's possible to do better that catalyzes people to actually do better.
2: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, you know, this is almost uh, a, another variation on the whole academic method in the first place of publish and verify. Kind of a funner way to go about it, really.
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting. One of the, I mean, we have several groups of, our community's um, well over half a million now, and by some measures, a quarter of the world's data science population. So it's quite big. But one of the big constituents within our community are actually academic researchers. Um, So if you're a, a researcher, You can choose to publish, you publish a paper, and then it takes several years before you start to get citations, and then several years before you get a critical mass of citations such that people are paying attention, Um, and then, you know, many more years after that before it makes its way into industry. On the flip side, if you win a competition, and you've beaten, you know, some of our bigger competitions have four or 5,000 teams, if you've beaten four or 5,000 teams, people are very curious about what you did that they didn't do, and so, they pay far more, more attention to what you've done, and so... You know, we've had some really interesting um, cases where uh, algorithmic developments have spread as a result of a Kaggle competition. So, in 2012, um, Geoffrey Hinton and some of his grad students from the University of Toronto used a technique that's now popularly known as deep learning or deep neural networks uh, to win a competition that Merck ran to Predict which com- chemical compounds would make for good drugs. Uh, then the next competition after that was won by an, one of Hinton's uh, grad students, Vlad Men, who took the text of job ads and was able to accurate for a, a jobs classified site in the UK and was able to accurately predict the salary that that job ad would. Um, would deserve. And so, as a result of those two, you know, before then, everybody had been using an algorithm called Random Forest and all of a sudden, these deep neural networks were starting to win competitions and suddenly our community have, you know, started to pay real attention. Um, and so, Um, Kaggle is a very effective way to spread. If you're a researcher and you want to spread that you have a new technique, Um, as I said, like people pay attention when you use a technique to beat them in a way that they don't when you publish in an academic journal. So it's actually often used to spread a technique faster than than conventional academic uh, publishing.
2: Can we talk a bit about some of these algorithms? I think most people aren't even aware of, you know, the the diversity of, of machine learning algorithms that are out there these days much less that there's a competition between them and that there's better ones and worse ones or even if that is any of that even true
1: yeah well there's certainly a huge number of machine learning algorithms actually in practice and i think this is one of kaggle's interesting contributions it's become very clear that actually only two two algorithms at the moment are winning competitions um and so kaggle i'd like to de- describe as a kind of a BS detector in that, um, you know, right. a lot of uh, – on, on this particular use case, in this particular circumstance, this algorithm does best. Well, in practice, we see two algorithms winning competitions. One of them is, is called gradient boosting machines. Um, and the implementation that's most popular is from Tianqi Chen at the University of Washington and it's called XGBoost. And the way to think about this algorithm, the primitive – um underneath underlying this algorithm is what we call a decision tree and so i am th- assuming this audience is probably somewhat familiar with the you know what a decision tree might look like but it's it's basically you know let's say you're trying to predict who's going to default on a loan um the first split point might be income so if income is greater than x then go down to this path on the tree if if income is less than x then go to this path, path part of the tree
0: yeah the the programming pattern is called b tree right a binary tree
1: right um well so there's so decision trees have been ra- around in in machine learning for a long time um and there have been lots of uh so gradient boosting machines are basically a really elegant approach to or a really interesting approach to using decision trees so how they work is you build one decision tree and that let's say that decision tree gets you um 30% of the cases correct. Uh, 30% of people who default on a loan are correct, and the, and 70% are incorrect. The second decision tree that you build is then optimized to get the 70% you got wrong from the first decision tree. And let's say you get an extra I don't hmm. know, 10% correct. Then the third decision tree aims to get all the things that the first two haven't got right. Wow. And so, you keep building more and more trees until you get to this point where um, you're getting really diminishing returns or the returns to evaporate. And at a certain point, the algorithm will settle and you're not doing any better. So, hmm. at gradient boosting machines wins half our competitions. It wins all the competitions with structured data. So, things that might fit into um, an Excel spreadsheet, for instance. The other half of our competitions are won by uh, deep learning, deep neural networks, which is getting a lot of attention now. So, the, this is basically um, the, the resurgence of a technique that's been a long, around for a long, long time called neural networks. And there are a few tricks that people have added to neural networks to make them more powerful, but there's also the fact that we have GPUs and, and GPUs are... are are well-optimized to train neural networks. So, it's really about outrageous horsepower
2: that makes the modern neural network work.
1: Yeah, I, it's it's partly outrageous ho- horsepower. It's partly the fact that we have more data. So, neural networks are prone to overfitting. Um, yes. But when you ha- have more data, um, that overfitting problem becomes you know, less acute. And,
2: and overfitting meaning you train the network so much on a given set of data that it's great at that data, but when you give it real data, it's not so good.
1: Yeah, exactly. It doesn't generalize well. So, you know, using that used car example, predicting warranty claims over the last 10 years where the warranty claims, it does an amazing job. And then you go and use it in the next car auction and it, it falls to pieces because it right. learned, it didn't really learn genuine patterns. And the, and the solution to that is more data. Yeah. Um, Yeah, well, more data is part of the solution. There's Mm -hmm. also, um, there's also been some nice techniques that, that have been developed. So there's a technique called dropout, where what you'll do is you'll, Drop out parts of the network, um, and if you drop out parts of the network, what it means is it means that the network is not overly reliant on any one single path. That's an example of a, a technique people use to prevent against overfitting. There have been lots, but that's one example uh, that has that is an example of a technique optimization. So there is there's more horsepower, there's more data, and there's technique optimizations. Interesting,
2: yeah. I know you, you can spend a lot of time exploring this. I mean, how much is the cloud making this easier?
1: Yeah, so one of the exciting things that's um, happened that AWS has done and Azure is in the process of doing is um, making GPUs available in the cloud. And so Google have huge GPU clusters, Facebook have huge GPU clusters, uh, Baidu have huge GPU clusters, but the the every participant in a Kaggle competition don't necessarily, you know, maybe they're at an academic lab, they have um, access to GPUs. So Amazon have an older NVIDIA architecture uh, that they make available through the, through Amazon Web Services. Um, and, and Microsoft is in the process of launching. They have announced, and I believe they're in the process of launching GPU instances on Azure. And actually, that's, it's very exciting because it's a newer architecture. And why do GPUs matter so much? So GPUs are particularly good for, um, a lot of ma- matrix, uh, operations. And, and one of the primitives, uh, matrix op- operations, as well as being very useful for graphics, graphical processing, are also very useful for a lot of the calculations that underlie neural networks.
2: They're just vectors, right? Right. Yeah, but just vectors is a loaded statement, too. Well, I mean,
0: that's, that's sort of what he's talking about is multidimensional data.
1: Yeah. So to train a neural network on a CPU versus a GPU, I think NVIDIA talk about the typical speed up being about a 10x speed up. And so, you know, that, that can be really significant. It can be the difference between taking five days to train a neural network or 50 days. Uh, right. so that, 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 you know, that period, that is five days is workable. 50 days is probably not. Um, so in a lot of cases, and particularly when you need to iterate, um, it makes it, it makes applications possible that weren't possible previously. Um, and so we can now, you know, in the last few years, Kaggle has run competitions to do things like uh, take MRIs and diagnose heart failure, um, take wow. high sc- high school essays and grade them using algorithms. Um, you know, some of these some of these kind of use use cases have only been made possible as a result of the the return of neural networks in the form of deep deep learning or deep, deep neural networks.
2: It's really cool. And so because. I th- last time I was looking it's like 20 30 different learning algorithms or machine learning algorithms that that make sense out there and you're really talking about two of them that matter
1: yeah yeah and and you know one of the one of the motivations one of the the big motivations for people to spend time on Kaggle is um, it's a very efficient way to learn right if you read a textbook, right. You'll learn about self-organizing maps and support vector machines and and nearest neighbors and a lot a lot of those techniques actually are are useful and you use them as an input. You know, nearest neighbors are very commonly used as an input to either the deep neural networks or the gradient boosting machines. However, it's a learning shortcut. You learn the things that like you compete in a competition. You finish. 500th, and then often on our forum or our blog, uh, the winner will post something, a little bit of information, or sometimes a lot of information about what they did to win. Mm. And so, you end up learning very efficiently. You've you've tried the problem, you know what you tried, and then you learn what the the winner tried, and then you can try that on the next competition.
2: Nice. Nice, indeed. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy.
1: Guess what time it is.
2: Uh, It must be that happy time again. Yeah.
0: It's time to announce a new initiative aimed to reduce friction in MVC development, by prescribing a steady cadence of mixed drinks. I call nice. it the Manhattan Project.
2: <laughs> How did I know you were going to go there? Because the old-fashioned project just doesn't have no, the same no, ring No, no, no. Anything where you have to muddle fruit is just not funny. You
0: know? <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But first... Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com/superhero.
2: All right, buddy. Who's our winner?
0: Today's winner is Stuart Healy from Buckinghamshire, in the UK.
2: Congratulations, Stuart! Congratulations, Stuart! Golf clap for you, sir. Absolutely.
0: And just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club, Stuart Healy has won the D Experience subscription—a big pile, of awesome from Developer Express. And if you don't know what we're doing here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .netrocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you have to sign up to win. We also like to ask our guests, Anthony, if you had five thousand dollars to spend on technology today, what would you buy
1: so well i have I have thought of two um the the one that is more novel, so I've just started racing. Uh, a kite foil, which is a hydrofoil kiteboard, And I oh. like to track my speed. Uh, and to track my speed, I have a GPS watch. The problem I have is that when you're traveling at 50 kilometers an hour, uh, looking at your watch often um, means that you lose concentration and you. Uh, yeah, then suddenly you're traveling substantially slower. <laughs> it's, it's substantially slower and your chest hurts because you've just whacked yes. the water. Uh, oh, yeah. And so. Rapid deceleration. <laughs> very rapid, <laughs> rapid deceleration. Exactly. You, you don't need a watch, you need a G meter. Well, there are – so, in sailing, they have a speedometer that you can mount onto the boat. And I would love to have a speedometer like that that you can mount onto the board. And Mm. so, I can just look at the front of the board, which is where I'm looking anyway, uh, rather than looking at my watch. Um, And I don't think they're quite $5,000, but uh, they're more expensive than I was prepared to pay. uh, Ah. (laughs) That's
0: some really cool hobby-specific technology right there. I love it.
1: Yeah.
2: That is very cool. Very cool. I still think the G meter is a good idea as well. I thought you'd go for like, there's the snowboarder goggles now that'll give you speed and direction and a bunch of things.
1: I just don't know how well they'll do in the water. Yeah, right. I mean, people wear a sunglasses version. I was restricting myself to things that I knew uh, that had been invented, but you wear wraparound sunglasses. And so a sunglasses version of uh, those ski goggles could be quite good. Uh, So if if I'm not restricted to things that are invented, I agree that would be an even better upgrade.
2: Well, yeah, there are snow goggles out there today. So I wonder if we could sort of take that and adapt to some degree. The waterproofness is going to be the bear, of course. Yeah, And I guarantee you're on salt, right? Because the, going those, that
1: kind of wind and that kind of speed, you're not going to do it on a lake. Uh <laughs> no, Well, you can do it on a lake, but in San Francisco, Chrissy Field, which is, it's actually an, a beautiful amphitheater. It's between the Golden Gate Bridge and Alcatraz. Hmm. And so the races actually start near Alcatraz. Um, wow. The first mark is near the Golden Gate Bridge. It's, it's a breathtaking. It's where the America's Cup was hosted a few years sure. ago.
0: A, do you know... I had an uncle who was on the Alcatraz swim team. <laughs> nice.
1: <laughs> there actually is a race every year uh, called Escape from Alcatraz where people it, – it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quite a popular open ocean race.
0: Wow.
2: And we thought the speed kiteboarding was a silly thing to do. And you're on hydrofoils too, so you're literally flying a little metal wing in the water with most of your board out of the water.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, so th- th- this, I think, this was inspired by the America's Cup. So the the last America's Cup, uh, the boat designers figured out that the boats go much faster when they hydrofoil, and the reason being is there's much less drag. Yeah, less wetted surface. Yeah, exactly. And so now a lot of sports, uh, say sail- uh, kiteboarding, um, the the old way of racing was on a board that was a surface board that sort of looks flat on the water Uh, Mm -hmm. they pretty much don't exist anymore Uh, everybody has moved to hydrofoil uh kiteboard racing and now at chrissy field you see wind surfers that are hydrofoils Um, you're starting to see stand-up paddle boards that are hydrofoils so it's really there is a lot of experimentation with hydrofoils at the moment Uh, but i think nowhere it hasn't got it more it it has particular traction in kiteboarding because it works particularly well
2: it's madness. I mean, I've I've done hydro f- uh, a foiled Hobie Cat, which is just a little catamaran sailboat. Sure. Uh this the moment the hull lifts out of the water, it's like you were punched in the back. Like the <laughs> the the boat takes off. And it's terrifying. Like if you're not prepared for just how much speed you get when your hull lifts out and you're riding on the foils, you, you it blows your mind. And and then you've got to stay alive.
1: And it was actually the biggest issue for me when I first started hydrofoil kiteboarding first of all there's the there's a bit of a learning curve in in actually being able to balance, but once you figure out how to balance um Probably it's non, a non-trivial amount of, uh, my early sessions were spent just acclimating to the additional speed and becoming comfortable with the additional speed. Um, I'm there now, but for a while I was wondering whether I was going to stick with it because it's, it, it, I was limited by my fear, not by how fast I could go. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's all in your head. And it's just,
2: well, it, like I said, the boat transforms. It becomes a different thing when, yeah. when it's riding on a foil and very smooth. It's actually a nicer ride, but it's it's tippy, it's sensitive, and it's really really stinking fast. And all the failure modes are dramatic. Yes,
1: <laughs> they all they they all hurt, put differently. It's yes. a nice way to put it.
2: Yeah, Now, I, I. That's how you get tossed. Out, and the problem when you're tossed out of a catamaran is there's a lot of ropes involved, and they're still
1: attached to you. Yeah. So one advantage of a kite is the kite kind of lifts you off. If you if you fall, it kind of depending on where it's located, it's more like a parachute. So you typically, you right. can't. You can organise things if you if you're quick, not to hit the water too fast.
0: So here's a question, Anthony: Have your has your hobby, you know, this uh, hydrofoil kiting, uh, intersected with your love of algorithms in any way?
1: It it has. So. Um... One of the ways you can waste a huge amount of time, uh, if you're a <laughs> kiteboarder is you can, you can spend a lot of time driving out to kiteboarding locations and realizing there's no wind. Uh, so I've had a side project to, um, actually have worked with Weatherflow, the company that um, collects a lot of the data on windsurfing sites uh, around trying to better forecast the wind. I have not made any breakthroughs yet, but we're actually uh, talking to these guys at the moment about putting out a competition because it turns out I'm a, I used to think I was a good data scientist. I'm not that good. There are much better people in our community, and so I'd, yeah. I'd love to see how they go on the problem.
0: Sounds like a job for Kaggle.
1: <laughs> yes, indeed.
0: <laughs> That's great.
1: Yeah, no, I love everything
2: about that. Just this whole idea of, you know, the the interesting part is, A, the, you have the competition, so you get some interesting minds involved, but then they tend to share their results as well. So, everybody gets better. Like I feel like you're elevating the industry here.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, that's all, it should be said, that's within the confines of what a customer will allow. So, we have right. some c- customers that are, are, are more sensitive and, and cust- some customers that aren't. I, ref- I made it a reference to that MRI case um, and that customer that we did that with Booz Allen uh, and the National Institute of Health and the motivation was to really show what deep learning was able to do with medical imaging, it holds huge potential. And so that was a wonderful example where they actually openly encouraged the winners to share their methods. Um, uh, There are cases, of course, where the company having the algorithm, they want to keep it very proprietary and they ask the winners to be a bit more circumspect about sharing. But I would say that's actually a minority of cases. Yeah.
2: Well, and it's certainly been my experience building uh, predictive analytics systems and, and working in data warehousing and so forth is when the moment that technology demonstrates a competitive advantage, it gets locked down for secrecy. Like it's it's suddenly a big deal to talk about what we're doing at all.
1: Yeah. Although often the source of, comp- not always, but often the source of competitive advantage is actually the flow of data. So if you're an right. insur- insurance company and you're trying to predict claims, um, you know, we have a lot of insurance customers, all state Liberty Mutual, uh, State Farm, um, all have very similar problems, but they all have Slightly different products, slightly different customer demographics, so actually, in a lot of cases, um, companies are open to sharing and and not locking down because they're aware of the fact that a lot of the lock in they have is you know algorithmic licensing is problematic it's 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 kind of a murky area, yeah, but yeah. actually their defensibility comes from Uh, the flow of data. You know, Allstate has a different customer base to State Farm. They have slightly different products. And so, the algorithm that works well for Allstate actually isn't going to transfer that well uh, to State Farm. There are cases where that's not the case. Uh, You know, financial, quant trading, for instance, we have quite a few quant trading customers. Um, it, It is the case with quant trading that everybody is, well, it's not exactly right, but a lot of quant funds have access to the same data. And so, if you find some You know, arbitrage opportunity or some algorithm that works. Um, it is something that can transfer, uh, to another quant fund. And that's why I think quant funds have, have a reputation for being secretive and definitely locking down the IP when they get, when they find something.
2: But jumping back to the, some of these learning methodologies is one of the reasons that, you know, gradient boosting and the neural networks sort of popped up is because you're only working on very sort of specific classes of data. Like it, it strikes me that these kinds of projects are very much a, a supervised learning problem set.
1: Yeah. So that is, that is definitely true. And that is a limitation of Kaggle. We only work on, um, uh, supervised machine learning. Um, the other, but that being said, the majority, there isn't much at the moment that is practically useful that isn't supervised machine learning. Um, right. there are, there are also other kinds of machine learning. So there's unsupervised machine learning where you sort of throw your data into a, uh, into some sort of unsupervised machine learning method and it will, uncover structures for you uh, that might be in the data. And sometimes that turns up interesting things and sometimes it doesn't. uh, there, there is a new area which actually uh, we are we are ad- adapting Kaggle to be able to handle these sort of problems. But there's a lot of uh, enthusiasm at the moment for a set of techniques called reinforcement learning techniques, which are sort of I would call call them a cousin of supervised machine learning techniques. Hmm. This is what uh, DeepMind, the Google subsidiary, used to to beat Lee Sedol in Go. They re- relied on a combination of supervised machine learning techniques and, and reinforcement learning, um, but to the extent that machine learning is being used for practical applications, it's the vast, vast, vast majority of it is, is supervised machine learning. So although it seems like it would be a limitation, it turns out not to be such a big, a huge limitation.
2: You also see that there's just an explosion in supervised learning techniques, like way more variety and concepts going on there than there are going on in, in the unsupervised learning and, and uh, the reinforcement learning areas.
1: Yeah, I, I think, um, I think that, well, supervised machine learning, um, is, yeah, it, as I said, it's, it's led to a lot of, um, commercially useful practical applications. Um, I would actually say the majority of the research effort and the exciting research at the moment is more focused on, on two areas, reinforcement learning, um, which is, as I said, kind of a cousin of deep, of supervised machine learning where you're trying to optimize a, a specific objective or you're trying to, Interactively increase a specific objective function. Uh, the other interesting area is uh, transfer learning, where you learn on a da- on one data set in order to be able to apply uh, the things you learn on a related kind of problem so mm, supervised sure. machine le- learning you you learn on you learn to classify digits from handwritten digits and then you apply it to you, you you then use it to classify digits you know maybe it's handwritten post zip codes on letters as a classic example with transfer learning you're learning on digits and then you're using that to uh, learn to do broader handwriting recognition um the reason this is an area of active research and, and ver- there's a lot of interest in this sort of research is to the extent that we're going to build an artificial general intelligence. Um, we have to go past just the classical su- supervised machine learning where you, you learn on a large volume of that case and then you apply it to future versions of that case. You know, what humans can do that machines can't do is learn something, uh, over there and then apply it over here you know i love the the raytheon example the classic raytheon example of uh, percy spencer who was working on radar during world war ii and Mm -hmm. he noticed it was melting his his chocolate bar and that gave him the inspiration that he could invent the microwave oven the original microwave oven called the radar ring oh right nice i did not know that i didn't know that either that's a very spectacular example of something humans can do uh, that that supervised machine learning cannot do. And the hope is that transfer learning and reinforcement learning might allow for more of that kind of a, a machine to do more of that kind of thinking.
2: Yeah. And I think it's a very challenging thing when we start talking about generalized uh, intelligence like this. Like that's such a different set of problems, really. How yeah. do you do you,
0: do people ever come to you and you know talk about the the coming catastrophe of artificial intelligence do you have any opinions on that
1: Yeah I, you know my my fear around um I, I I'm not terribly worried about the coming of the singularity and and uh and yeah, us building machines that are, are smarter than us uh, aka you yeah, know 2001 a space odyssey right. um that I don't lose sleep over that so much as I really do think machine learning is capable of incredible things at the moment. You know, I, I've given you two examples earlier in the show, one being the the MR, taking MRIs uh, to diagnose heart failure. We've done, mm-hmm. um, taking images of the eye to diagnose diabetic retinopathy. We're doing something with ultrasound data at the moment. Yeah. Um, high school essay grading, teachers grade high school essays when well, we now have algorithms that can, can do a good job on certain high school essays. Um, so I a little bit worry about how quickly machine learning is becoming capable and whether people who have jobs that machines are now capable of doing will be able to retrain, uh, quickly enough. Changes in what technology is capable of have, have been, you know, since the industrial revolution. This has been a this has been a part of our economy, and it's happened slowly enough that people have been being able to retrain. Um, I a little bit worry that machine learning and the capabilities of machine learning have risen so quickly mm-hmm. that, you know, that the dislocation is faster. That being said, I I think that what we find is that. Technology is very often not, in, in fact, almost never the limiting factor in getting these algorithms implemented. Uh, I think we have, you know, Kaggle sees this, we work with a lot of large companies, getting companies to trust these algorithms, rearranging their processes to it, to accommodate these algorithms, um, is slowing the, Actual use of machine learning down pretty significantly, um, and hmm. and and that's sort of having a metering effect that that may mitigate against some of my concerns about the the dislocation that machine learning might bring in certain areas.
0: So earlier on in the show, Richard asked you to talk about some of these algorithms, and I, I kind of feel like we sort of lost our momentum on that list. Are there some uh, very notable algorithms that have uh, come through in particular that? are worth mentioning?
1: Yeah, I, I think that the two I mentioned earlier are um, are interesting. So, XGBoost or Gradient Boosting Machines, Gradient Boosting Machines with the XGBoost imp- implementation and Deep Neural Networks. There's another level of nuance there that I think is worth talking about because it's interesting. We've seen that the people who do well at training uh, gradient boosting machines are quite different to the people who do well on the deep neural network competitions. They require actually quite different skill sets. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. So, the, in order to use gradient b- boosting machines well, um, you have to do something that in the machine learning jargon is called feature engineering. This is h- How you do your feature engineering is very important. Now, feature engineering is really just jargon for how you slice and dice the data and put it into the algorithm. So, um, we spoke a little bit earlier about the competition we ran to take used cars and predict which cars sold at a secondhand auction would be good buyers and which would be lemons. Well, it turned out that one of the top performers found that car colour had a huge impact on whether huh. or not a car was going to be a good buyer or a lemon. and mm-hmm. And the relationship they found was that, if you were the first buyer of a and so unusual color cars were more likely to be reliable, so they were less likely to have a warranty claim. So if, if you were the first buyer of an orange car, um, you were probably more likely to look after it. And so by the time it sold at a secondhand auction, it was a better condition. Now, what did what did the person have to do to find that insight? Well, they had to try all sorts of you know different combinations. They tried dark color cars versus light color cars. They tried, um you know, unusual color cars versus standard color cars.
2: Yeah, the definition unusual color and is interesting all by itself. You had to
1: invent a category, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so, so how you do that it just takes creativity. Somebody would come up with thousands, hundreds, if not thousands, of different hypotheses, and not just about car color, also about you know the way the make of the car and the miles and and how that stuff interacts, and then rigorously test which of those are real relationships and which ones are not. They'd keep the real relationships and dismiss the ones that aren't real relationships. And so, once you've found the things that you think are real relationships, then you put them into your gradient boosting machine or your XG Boost. and most of the magic is in the features you create. Now deep learning and, or deep neural networks is quite different. And again, remember, it typically works on unstructured data. So, images, speech, uh, some, some text problems. Yeah. And so, it's harder to have an intuition about, you can't really have an intuition about, you know, this pixel over there means somebody has heart failure, right? Um, and so, all the time that somebody, or mo- whereas with XGBoost or gradient boosting machines, you should spend 80% of your time. Uh, creating features and 20% of your time tuning the the gradient boosting machine. It's that re- relationship is flipped. You spend very little time doing feature engineering on the deep neural network problems, and you spend almost all of your time uh, t- tuning the deep neural network. So how many layers? What is the activation function? It's they're all sort of parameters of the deep. What is the the exact mechanism you're going to use to prevent against overfitting? Those are all parameters that you tune in your in your deep neural network uh, and you spend almost all your time doing that and very little of your time on the feature engineering. So the, hmm. the gradient boosting machine solutions typically reward for creativity. Um, uh, the deep neural network solutions, you've got to be very, you know, really attuned to how the deep neural networks work and how, you know, ch- turning this knob will impact the whole architecture of the network and which knobs are probably the right ones to, to turn. Uh, so, they're just very different skill sets and we see very, very different people do well on each each of the types of competitions. Awesome. And it's
2: interesting to see a broad schism like that, that there's very different approaches to solving these kinds of problems. Although admittedly there are different kinds of problems. The yeah, neural they networks are. are better at you wouldn't want to try and do image recognition in a gradient boost machine. It's just,
1: that's a hard thing to do. Well, it's interesting because before the return of deep neural networks, people did used to use gradient boosting machines and then random forest, which before gradient boosting machines really took over on Kaggle, random forest, which is a a variant on ensemble of just a different kind of ensemble of decision tree was the dominant Mm -hmm. algorithm. And it's been super super superseded, but um, it was the case that people used random forest or gradient boosting machines and, um, it was the case that the level of accuracy that you could get out of GBMs or gradient boosting machines or random forests was dramatically lower than what you can get out of uh, deep neural networks. So um, hopefully that gives you an intuition for when, when you hear in the news about deep learning or deep neural networks and why it's exciting. Hopefully that puts a little bit more color on it. Yeah, where, where that's coming from. Yeah. And definitely,
2: when you talk about imagery, it's like the biggest thing that social media has done is put a lot more pictures on the internet for you to oh, analyze. Yeah. Right, right, a lot of cats.
0: Anthony, how, how, what percentage of participants in Kaggle are students?
1: Yeah, so we, about two thirds of our community, um, come come from industry. So either they're currently data scientists or they're physicists or biologists. Um, and they have some sort of data science as part of their profession. Uh, and then one third is. Uh, academia, of and that includes students. Um, and I, I would say of that one-third, two-thirds would be students, and one-third uh, would be researchers. Um, so, a decent proportion of our community is students. Um, one of the reasons that we have a pretty large student population, aside from the fact that the obvious one, that they have time and they're you know, mo- motivated by learning, um, is we have a product called Kaggle in Class, where professors host competitions for their students. Nice. And so... Yes, yeah, so it's cool. So this started actually. It was, it's a nice story behind the, the starting of this product. Um, this is the company was brand new. Uh, we had almost no customers and, you know, one of the Stanford TA sort of approached us and said, well, um, I'd like to host a competition for my class. And we're like, yes, we'll take any competition we could get. Uh, then in the interim, the company started doing quite well. We got NASA as a customer. We got Allstate as a customer. And then I'd forgotten that I'd said yes to this Stanford TA and six months later, he said, all right, I got my data set. Can I put it up on Kaggle now? And I couldn't really have NASA Allstate and the Stanford Stats 202 class. Um, right. So, so the solution to that was at at the time, we're now on um, Azure and C Sharp and the Microsoft stack, but we were on uh, uh, the LAMP stack at the time. And so I literally, just did a CP minus R. Uh, copied the whole site, changed the the logo, uh, connected it to a new database, and. Um, this Kaggle in class product was born. It's actually an amazing product in that we don't touch it. It just sits there. It's free. The URL is in class.kaggle.com. I think we did around about 250 classes last semester. Uh, so 250 classes are running machine learning, internal machine learning competitions as, you know, part of learning, um, uh, some of these machine learning techniques. And the, the quote I love, uh, is the, that, that staff, Stanford, Stanford stats, uh, 202 professor, Susan Holmes. I, I, Bumped into her at a conference, and I said, "What was the experience of running the in class competition like?" And she said, "You know, the winning team spent a hundred hours building their in class solution. I've never been able to get students to spend a hundred hours on anything. So, so there's something <laughs> <laughs> there's something addictive about leaderboards and you know, sort of class rivalry. And, and so it's 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 been a nice product for us. Uh, that's really low touch on our side. It really runs itself and and." Nice. Um, and, uh, it's, it's part of the reason we have such a big student population on Kaggle.
2: That's great. You know, it occurs to me that the, the methodology behind the gradient boosting machine with this, you pull off a feature, you get it, you find a feature that has a decent return and then you add another one that works on a, the, the remaining set for a smaller return and so forth just lends itself to this idea of, I know I can do better. Find an, what something else. Find something else. You've seen someone else. Using GBM be more
1: successful. You're going to push yourself to get those tighter and tighter slices. (laughs) Yeah, uh, gradient boosting machines are a nice metaphor for Kaggle. Well, it's actually interesting. I I forgot to mention this when I was talking about the the power of competitions. But one interesting thing we see is yeah, you know, people keep passing each other at the end of a competition or sometime before the end of a competition. What you find is that people converge on about the same level. All the top people converge on about the same level of accuracy. And the intuition is that there's only so much signal in a data set. You've got signal and you've got noise. And because they're working in this competitive environment and somebody, you know, I'm in first and somebody's passing me and I'm passing them, um, that they push each other until they they get to that limit. And then at the end of the competition, really what a customer gets is they get a a very clear sense for given the problem I have, what is the and the state of the data I have, the problem I have and the state of the art in machine learning. Like how much signal is there in, in my data set? Um, and then they also get the method that gets them there. And so, it's, it's you know, customers use us to improve existing algorithms. So, Allstate has claims prediction algorithms. They're trying to predict, uh, trying to improve those claims prediction algorithms to improve their insurance pricing. That's like a, to improve on something existing and see where they are relative to the frontier. Hmm. But they also use us to prototype things that are speculative. So, insurance, there's a big question at the moment around, can you rather than have an insurance assessor go out and assess a damaged car, can you take a photo with a smartphone and can a deep neural network automatically do an assessment? I mean we have no nice. idea. the insurance company has no idea and at the end of running a competition you will know exactly how possible it is and whether or not it is for, it's quite, a, quite an effective way to prototype.
2: Yeah, no, it's an awesome idea and a great way to explore it for a real, some of these competitions you're paying a hundred thousand dollars.
1: Yeah. yeah. The biggest, biggest prize we've ever paid is half a million. Um, wow. but that's not, it's not the motivation for most people to participate. Um, right. Uh, because the problem is, so yes, the prizes are big, but they're really hard to win. Uh, people are, I mean, it's communities 500,000. You've got people like Jeff Hinton who have competed in, it's just, it's not easy to win. And if you are smart enough to win, um, I think it's probably an argument. You're probably
2: that, busy enough to not have to worry about
1: it anyway. <laughs> Well, I think there's an argument that, you know, you, if you're motivated by money, you could probably build algorithms to trade the stock market and make a lot of money that way. Um, right. Right. Uh, so I I don't I, I never encourage people to compete on Kaggle as a way to make money. I would love for us to be able to provide a high, high enough volume of problems that people could make a full time living. Yeah. Um, but the problem is on one side we have a, it's an enterprise sales process. You know we go to a customer, we pitch them, we go through contracting. It's sort of a slow process to get competitions up. On the other hand, data science and data scientists are growing very quickly, and so yes. we we sign up. Uh, I think it's about a thousand new data scientists a day, and so we just can't. Wow we get more, given the competition we run, we get, you know, up to 5,000 teams in them today. Whereas, you know, four years ago, we'd have maybe 50 to 200 teams participating.
0: So, what's next for you, Anthony?
1: Um, So, we are, so we have, we've built a nice business in competitions and it's a a really fun business and we have a big community. Um, We're starting to work on uh, that the kind of our next thing is is starting to promote better. we want to introduce a lot of software engineering principles to data scientists, and so we started building tools that people can use as they w- compete in our competitions to sort of better share and collaborate and and create create reproducible code and so we 've got this new environment called scripts where you can use it and it introduce you to version control uh, it 's actually docker running under the hood so you mm. can you can, your code runs in a Docker container on our servers. It means other people can take your code and fork it. Um, and eventually, you know, we're quite excited about this as a direction for us. Um, we'd like to add on to not just run the competitions, but also give people a place to, to share and collaborate. Um, kind of what GitHub has done for software engineers. We'd like to introduce ideas like that into our community. Um, and so that's the thing we're, we're, we're actively working on. Uh, and it's it's sort of the next big concept uh, that we're we're in the process of launching onto Kaggle. Well,
0: that sounds great. I wish you the best of luck and congratulations. It seems like it's an amazing site.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. And thanks for having me on the show. You
0: bet. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.